over the past few weeks, as we've been in Second Samuel, uh, what we've seen is that things are a mess. It, the question keeps coming up, who's in charge? Who has power? Who's in control? Is it going to be Absalom? Is he going to come out on top? What about David? Who's going to have the last word? Who is the sovereign one? Who has the influence? Who's going to actually bring about and sustain their kingdom? Maybe even underlying that is, where's God been in the midst of this? What kind of power does he have? Is he really in control? I mean, would a God who has control like this choose David and allow his kingdom to go through this kind of mess and this kind of struggle? In fact, it's actually been since chapter 12 that we've heard any mention of God speaking or of the author of 1 Samuel pointing us and directing us to God's actions and what he's doing. Does he care? Is he at work? Does he have power to do anything in the midst of what is going on in this messed up, kingdom of his. This morning, as we turn to 2 Samuel chapter 17, the author is going to pull the veil back and we're going to see that God has been at work. So if you will, turn with me. We're in chapter 17 of the book of 2 Samuel. If you follow along in one of the black Bibles in your seats, this is on page 268. Remember where we left off last, last time Absalom has entered into uh, Jerusalem, continuing his conspiracy to take over the throne of the, the nation of Israel. David has fled, and one of the co-conspirators is Ahithophel, one of David's former counselors, but another one of David's friends has been sent back uh, to work on David's behalf in the midst of the uh, the people. And so here we're picking up on uh, the, the second conversation that Absalom has with these counselors. So let's pick up there in verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he's weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic, and all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Then Absalom said, Call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, Thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Then Hushai said to Absalom, This time, the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, You know that your father and his men are mighty men, and that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is an expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he's hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears of it will say, 
There's been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant man, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel know that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude and that you go out to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him not one will be left. If he withdraws into a city then all Israel will bring ropes to that city and we shall drag it into the valley until not even a pebble is to be found there. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For Yahweh had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that Yahweh might bring harm upon Absalom. Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, Thus and so did Ahithophel counsel Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so have I counseled. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, Do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. Now Jonathan and Ahimaaz were waiting at Enrogel. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. But a young man saw them and told Absalom, so both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Baarim, who had a well in his courtyard, and they went down into it. And the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it, and nothing was known of it. When Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where where are Ahamaz and Jonathan? And the woman said to them, They've gone over the brook of water. And when they had sought and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. After they had gone, the men came up out of the well and went and told King David. They said to David, Arise and go quickly over the water, for thus and so has Ahithophel counseled against you. Then David arose, and all the people who were with him, and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. When Hithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself, and he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab, Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi the son of Nahash from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Makir the son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gileadite from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey and curds and sheep and cheese from the herd for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Let's pray. Father, there are a great many things that we encounter in our lives and in the world that do not make sense. There are many things as well that we encounter in Your Word that are hard for us to comprehend and understand. We pray and ask this morning that You would enable and allow us, Your people, to see and understand what Your Scriptures teach. That we would understand more deeply the character of You, our God. 
that we would find comfort and rest and hope in You, in Jesus, our King, as we endure and as we wait the sure coming of His kingdom. Work among us this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. So notice this this chapter, there's 29 verses. And right in the middle, chapter 14, is when the narrator pulls the veil back. And we see him talking and speaking and telling us about what God is up to. Like I said before, it's been since chapter 12 that we've seen a hint of this. And here, finally, the narrator breaks his silence. And it's centered here in the middle of this chapter as if everything is pointing in this chapter to this point, to what God is up to in the midst of the chaos and the infighting and the, uh, the, the conspiracies. What is it that he's trying to direct our attention to? To this question of who's in power? What we're going to see is that is it our God. He is the sovereign one. And he has power over all things and in all things. Notice, let's look specifically there at verse 14. Notice how he, how he starts off. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For Yahweh had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. We, we may have thought that God wasn't at work. It may have appeared as if things were spiraling out of control. But what the narrator tells us here, where the word of God points us, is that God, in fact, was at work. The sovereign king of Israel is never without power. He, in the midst of all of this, had ordained, it tells us, to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. The one whom it told us at the end of, of chapter 16, that when Ahithophel gave counsel, it was as if one consulted the word of God. And here we see, if we were confused, if we were thinking that God wasn't at work, the narrator highlights it for us. God has a purpose. He has been behind all that is going on. It was his work. It was his intention to use Hushai to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel. But we may step back and, and ask some questions. How, how is that right? What, what about, I thought it was David's scheme. Remember, wasn't it David's plan? David was the one who came up with this idea when he saw Hushai to send him back in to work on his behalf. Look back over in chapter 15. In fact, this is in fact exactly what David says in verse 34. Speaking to Hushai, David says this, But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. David had this plan. David was the one who had Hushai sent there. 
But the narrator is telling us that God also was at work. In fact, look, look a little bit before that, up in verse 31. When it was told David, Ahithophel was among the conspirators with Absalom, and David said, O Yahweh, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. The chaos, the news that this one, this great counselor, had gone into cahoots with Absalom, turns David to prayer. And David prays and he asks God to do something. And what immediately happens? What does the narrator tell us immediately happens as soon as this prayer is uttered? Look in verse 32. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him. The answer. The answer to David's prayer is coming up with dust on his head, his clothes torn. David had the scheme and the idea to send Hushai back, but who provided him? God. You see, what we're beginning to see is this chapter is pointing us to God's ordained purposes, to his great decrees, toward his sovereign act and work in the world. We've seen that although it looks like he hasn't been at work, in fact, he has been. All of this is playing out according to the foreordained plan and decree of our sovereign and our great God. Hushai didn't come on accident. David didn't come up with his plan on his own. In fact, God was at work in it all. God is the sovereign one who governs all his creatures and all their actions. Nothing is outside of his control. Everything works into his purposes, even the prayers of his people. You see, if God was the one who, who had ordained or commanded, is the, the, the term there, that Hushai would defeat the council of Ahithophel, then God was the one who was even at work bringing about the circumstances that would move the heart of David to call out and cry to him. The prayers of God's people are part of the way that he's working out his purposes in the world. God decrees all things. He has determined how everything is going to fold out. And God has also determined the means by which that is going to happen. And the prayer of God's people is one of those things. The prayers of God's people fall under his sovereign power and work and control. In case we're misunderstanding this, look over to Ezekiel chapter 36. Verse 37. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, This also... I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during our appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. Notice notice what God's saying here. He's already made these promises to his people that he's going to restore them out of the exile. But he goes further and he says, what I'm going to do 
is I'm going to allow the people of Israel to call out to me, to ask me to restore them. This is the means by which I will bring about my promises through the prayers of my people. Why would God ordain and purpose to involve and use the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes? Well, notice what he says. So that then they will know that I am Yahweh. You see, God is doing all things according to the counsel of his will, to the praise of his glory and his actions and his work in the world. And we've seen it confirmed here in Ezekiel. It's what God is doing back in 2 Samuel. The New Testament points this out to us as well. In Ephesians chapter 1, listen to what Paul says in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. According to Paul, what is excluded from what God is working according to the counsel of his will? Nothing. Everything. Think about the other things Scripture has taught us about. Hair falling from your head does not happen apart from the purposes of God. Did anybody have that happen this morning when you're getting ready for church? See some in the sink? Maybe more than you were hoping to see? That was not an accident, the Scriptures tell us. Because we worship a sovereign and powerful God that everything happens according to the purpose of His will. Hair falling from your head. Birds falling from the sky. Our prayers offered up to Him. All things are happening according to the good and gracious and perfect and righteous counsel of the will of our sovereign God. Jesus confirms this to us. What did we just pray this morning from the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now why in the world are we praying that? What have we seen in every chapter of 1 and 2 Samuel so far? The kingdom of God is coming. There is no doubt He will bring it about. He will accomplish it. It will come. But notice Jesus doesn't say, you know what? The kingdom of God's coming. Don't worry about it. Don't pray about it. Don't ask God about it. No, he says, I want you to pray and ask God to bring about his kingdom. Why? Because the means by which God brings about His purposes and the plans that He has in the world, one of those means is the prayers of His people, and He is sovereign even over those. He has ordained and decreed that God's people would pray for His kingdom and use those to bring about the kingdom here on earth as we await Jesus' coming. And what will the result be? That we as His people look at everything that happens, and because we are a praying people, will recognize there's only one way this could have happened. Our God. He is at work. So when we look back at 2 Samuel, 
The, the arrow in the chapter is pointing to the sovereign God who is at work. And if we doubt and wonder whether he's in control or whether he has power or who's going to come out on top, the verse tells us that everything is happening according to the ordained purposes of our God who has purposed to defeat the council of Ahithophel and it is happening just as he intended. So what does that mean for you and me? What it means is that we should have confidence in our prayer. We don't sit back and say, well, God's going to do whatever he's going to do. It doesn't matter if I pray. And that's not the way the scriptures direct us. You see, it's actually the sovereign purposes of our God that undergird and support and empower and enable our ability to pray. That is why we can have confidence to come to the sovereign and mighty and powerful God who works all things according to his purpose and seek this mighty and powerful one. He's not sitting up there with his hands all tied, sitting on his fingers, not knowing what he can do or if he has the power or the ability to do it. He is the sovereign and mighty one. Who is this God? We can compare him to nothing. There is no other God out there like him. As we saw in Genesis, when our God got done working on the creation week, there was absolutely nothing left for any other God to do. He took care of it all. Is he at work? Who is in charge? Who will have the last word? Who has the power and the sovereignty in this chapter when it looks like everything is outside of control? It is our God. It is the covenant God of his covenant people who has redeemed and saved us in Jesus. May we seek him in confidence and flee to him in prayer, confident that it will work and he will accomplish his purposes. But notice, there's more. Go back to verse 14 in chapter 17. We've seen that God's sovereign over all his creatures, all their actions. This even extends to the prayers of God's people. But notice, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For Yahweh had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that Yahweh might bring harm upon Absalom. So that he might bring harm upon Absalom. What does that mean? It means Absalom will not succeed. There is nothing that Absalom can do that will thwart or defeat or frustrate the purposes and the work and the kingdom of God. It's a fool's errand for Absalom to attempt and try to do this. He has zero power to bring an end to God's kingdom or to remove God's sovereign chosen king from his throne until God purposes and determines it. Remember, we've seen, we've seen this. Look over back in, or forward, it's not back, but look forward into Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves up and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, 
I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God looks at the intentions and the rebellion and the gathering of themselves against him and against his anointed, and he laughs. He mocks because there is absolutely zero way these plans will succeed. Why? Because he's a sovereign one. He's the powerful one. He is the one who will bring an end to all of Absalom's work. And he has the intentions to bring harm upon this rebel and this conspirator against his kingdom. But we might say, hold on. I remember back in chapter 12 that Absalom's come to power because of the prophecy of God through Nathan. Do you remember that? Flip, flip back over. Second Samuel chapter 12. Starting there in verse 9. This is God speaking through the prophet Nathan directly to David. This, in fact, is the last time we heard God speak directly. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Who will raise it up? God will. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Who has brought Absalom to power? Absalom has been at work bringing Absalom to power. But when the veil gets peeled back, we see that the sovereign God is the one who is at work. You see, he's not just sovereign over hairs falling from heads, birds falling from sky, prayers of his people. Remember, all things work according to the counsel of his will, including rebellion and sin and evil actions in the world. Nothing, nothing falls out of his sovereign power and of his purposes and his decrees. You see, God governs over all of his creatures, all of his actions, and that even extends to the wicked and sinful acts of humanity. That's can be hard for us to, to grasp and understand. Does that mean that, that God is responsible for evil? Or does it mean that those who commit these sins are not responsible for them? Well, actually, what the Scriptures tell us is that both are working in those acts. Where God is decreeing and purposing the free acts of responsible Beings, where the glory of these actions all come to the glory and honor and perfections of our God for His intentions in bringing them about, and the sinfulness of them proceed only from the, from the 
the wicked sinner and human. Let's look and see where we see that. We see it here in this chapter with Absalom. Absalom's doing exactly what he wants to do. God's not forcing him to do anything against his will. He's doing exactly what is flowing out of his heart. But flip back over into Genesis chapter 50. This is where we encounter Joseph. He's meeting with his brothers, and they're in Egypt. Remember how Joseph got to Egypt? His brothers sold him into slavery. Listen to what Joseph says as he interprets what's going on. In verse 18 of chapter 50 of Genesis, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Who was at work in these acts? Who was the cause of these acts? God and the brothers. The ultimate cause is God, but He's also using the means and the desires of these wicked men to accomplish His purposes. But what were the intentions of both? God's intention in using them was to bring about good. What were their intentions? They weren't saying, no, no, no. I want to honor God. I don't want to hurt Joseph. No, what was flowing out of their heart was wickedness and evil. God gets the glory in His deliverance and provision of His people. All of it happened according to His purposes. The brothers are responsible. This this comes up elsewhere in in Scripture. Pointing to these because sometimes this is a a hard... uh, theological truth to to grasp as we see it throughout the Scriptures. Both God's sovereignty and human responsibility and the glory and honor of our God. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 10. God here is prophesying through Isaiah that He is going to discipline and purify His people through the king of Assyria. Listen to what He says here. In verse 5. Woe to Assyria... The rod of my anger, the staff in their, in their hands, is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. What is God's intention? Why has he purposed to send Assyria? To punish, to purify, to discipline his people. Notice what the king of Assyria His intentions are. Look in verse 7. But he does not so intend, and his heart does not so think. But it is is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. His intention is to dominate and crush. He has no concept or, or desire to glorify and be used in the purposes of God to discipline and purify and shape his people. And because of that heart... God says this in verse 12. When the Lord has finished all His work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem through the Assyrians, He will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on the throne. Notice in the midst of it, he is doing exactly what he desires and he intends. 
to destroy. In fact, he is rejecting all uh, evidence of God's work in the midst of it. He claims all responsibility and intentions to himself and all power and ability and authority and and, uh, the capability of doing it comes out of him. And guess what God is going to do? He's going to judge him for that. God gets the glory and the intention for purifying his people through the the sending of Assyria. And the Assyrian king gets judged for his rebellion. Why? Because we serve a sovereign God. Is he out of control with what's going on in Absalom? When it looks like his king and his kingdom will meet their end, when it looks like humanity has the upper hand and will come about to defeat the purposes of our God, Scripture tells us, no, no. Do not forget who the God is that has redeemed and saved you. Do not forget who the God is that you have served. He is the sovereign one. Who is like this God? None. He has power and authority and might over all things. And he works and decrees and determines and purposes everything to work out according to the purposes of his will. With Absalom. God will harm him and bring an end to his conspiratorial work. But we see this happen again with David's greater son, don't we? As the nations rise up, as they rage against God and against his anointed, it will look again later on like God's forgot his promises. It'll look again like he is insufficient to save. It'll look again like that he is not the sovereign and mighty one. The religious leaders of Israel have the upper hand. The Roman government will have the last word. But listen to what Peter says in Acts as he reflects on what's going on. In Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourself know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why did Jesus die? Because wicked men crucified him. Ultimately, why did Jesus die? Because it was happening according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of our sovereign and mighty and powerful God who would stop at nothing to bring about his purposes. Peter confirms this again over in verse 23 of chapter 4. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of this earth set themselves and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Why do the nations rage? Why did Israel and Rome rise up against Jesus? Why did Absalom rise up against David? Because it was a part of the purpose and intentions and predestined and determined decree and purpose of our sovereign and great God. How should we, as God's people, respond to this truth about the character and the might and the power of our God? Well, the same way we see Peter and the disciples responding. The same way that the author of 2 Samuel wants us to respond when we reflect on the fact that our God is the sovereign one, is we should take great comfort. We should take great comfort that the God that we serve, the God who has redeemed and saved us, is the sovereign Lord over all things. And even the, the sinful rebellion of humanity doesn't fall outside of his plan. In fact, that's how he purposed to bring about our deliverance and our redemption through Jesus. We should take great comfort. We might not understand this mystery of how these things come together. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, but we should be comforted that it is our God who is in control over all things. But also, it should lead those who are still in rebellion to repentance. Do you notice how Absalom responded? I mean, Ahithophel responded? We'll close up with this. Verse 23 of chapter 17. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. The counsel that Ahithophel gave, the narrator tells us up in verse 14 that it was good counsel. Not morally good, but militarily good. If they would have followed Ahithophel's counsel, David would have been wiped out. The end of the kingdom. And Ahithophel knows this. And the fact that David escaped, Ahithophel knows and recognizes, that's it. Absalom's kingdom is coming to an end and David is going to be on the, the throne. And what does that mean for me? Well, what does it mean for you, Ahithophel? Ahithophel seems to have forgotten what happened to Abner. You remember who Abner was? Saul's uncle? Who also participated in a conspiracy to rise up Ishbosheth, a rival king, and to go into battle and attack David? But when Abner realized he had been defeated, what did he do? He pled for mercy before the king, and what was given to him? Mercy and grace. Here, Ahithophel, instead of, like Psalm 2 calls us, to kiss the son lest he be angry, to call out to him in mercy while we still have the chance, he recognized the foolishness of his rebellion, but didn't remember that he serves a gracious and merciful God, and that if he had come to him and pled before him for mercy, forgiveness could be his. And he died in his rebellion. And he will live there forever. But we respond to the sovereign power of our God who will bring about his kingdom. Your rebellion will not succeed. Therefore, you have two choices. You can just give up and continue to rule your own kingdom and say, I'm done. Or you can come before a gracious God and a merciful king and plead to him 
and He will forgive. We said all things happen according to the purpose of God's will. None of us are here on accident this morning. God has all of us here to hear His message and His call to all of us is to turn from our rebellion and call out to His King for mercy and to be comforted in the power and the work of our sovereign God. This is a good news of the gospel. Jesus rules and Jesus reigns. And if you're in rebellion against Him now, hear the offer. He extends mercy to those who call out to Him. Flee to Him this morning. The sovereign God is mighty to save. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You uh, for Your work on our behalf. We thank You that You are not a, a weak king or a weak Savior, but that You accomplish all that You intend to deliver and save and redeem Your people. May we take great comfort. May our eyes and our despair turn to Your power and Your work and Your sufficiency. In Christ's name, amen.